Good evening, Hope Reformed Baptist Church. Find yourselves in Romans 8. Please go there right now. Open up. We started last week (laughs) with the good news of Jesus Christ for all those who believe, which is that there is no condemnation for our sin, which is otherwise completely and justly deserved. Every single person born in this world is born under God's wrath, lives under God's wrath, dies under God's wrath, and perishes eternally under God's wrath unless, by faith, they believe in Jesus who died for them, and then his death is counted as their death, and his perfection is counted as their perfection, which Romans chapter 8 verse 1 calls no condemnation. That's what we called last week justification, that we see so powerfully put forward for us in Romans chapter 3, that, that my sins are forgiven, And I'm counted righteous because Jesus lived and died in my place. That is the good news of justification. That is in Jesus Christ alone. And that is received by sinners only by the sole instrument of faith and faith alone. Now we're going on tonight from Romans chapter 1 verse, uh, sorry, Romans chapter 8. Verse 1 to 3, we did last week. We're going to move now to verses 4 through to verses, uh, down to verse 11. And tonight's big question, the, 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 the question that now erupts out of the mind of anybody's experience who is a Christian, imagine us in the, in the courtroom of God, Romans chapter 8, 1 through 3, God the judge looked at us and told us, you are justly guilty. You deserve hell. My son has been sent in the flesh to die for you, for your sin and be raised. You no longer have to pay that penalty. You no longer have to be accounted by your own deeds. But I will look at you on the basis of Jesus' deeds. You're not condemned. You are justified. You are righteous in my sight. And we turn around and we... We go out the doors of the courtroom of God and we know we're adopted and we're children of God and we have a life to live and jobs to work and families to love and and we go into the Christian life and now the question is, does that legal verdict in the courtroom of God, does that change me at all? The just legal verdict that God gave me The law is satisfied, you're not condemned, you're righteous. That was not on account of me. It had nothing to do with me changing and then becoming called just. In fact, being called just and justified in God's sight doesn't, I'm answering the question, it does not change you whatsoever. Justification is a legal verdict, not an experiential verdict. Not an existential change, right? Just big word meaning your existence, your actual lived reality, who and what you are doesn't change just because on the, on the books of God's court, he changed some numbers. It doesn't change you. But we ask, does the gospel change me? Is there something in the gospel that is more than only justification, not less than justification, not distracting from justification, but in the gospel of Jesus Christ who gives his spirit and eternal, is there more than just justification? Does, does me coming out of the courtroom now, a child of God, should I expect change? The answer is yes. So let's look at verse 3, because that's the beginning of the sentence, and we'll go down to verse 11. God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could never do, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for our sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that 
the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Verse 5. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. For the mind that is set on the flesh is death. But the mind that is set on the, on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it can't. Those who are in the flesh can not please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not even belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. May God bless his word in our midst this evening. Here is the big why. Why of justification. Why did God send his son? Why did God make the pactum salutis, the, the covenant of redemption, the, 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 the aim and the plan and the purpose to save sinners out of sin? Why did he do it? Verse 4 tells us, so that finally, finally God might have what he always desired, which is people made in his image acting like him. A holy people was, was the end point and the end plan of God's covenant of redemption. All that God has been doing in, in saving and setting apart Israel and then sending the prophets and then prophesying Jesus and sending Jesus and dying for our sin and then sending the Spirit is so that finally, now to a degree and in the future in a finalized, consummated sense, God might finally be the God of a many humble, holy, righteous, lawful people. He wants a holy family. He's redeeming a holy nation. He's, he's creating a new world in the future, and he's going to fill it with righteous people, and that's starting now by justifying us. So that's chapter, one, uh, chapter 8, verse 1 through 3. We could never inherit that world. We could never be in God's good graces. We were condemned, but he sent his son, declared us righteous. He died for us. We're now in right standing so that. In order that. That makes this a why question. Why did Jesus come and die for us? Why did God declare us just? Why does he create this, this new race of people called the righteous, the saints, the justified ones? Why? So that we would be more than just justified people. But that we would be justified people who then live out the commands of the law in our actual lived experience by living according to the spirit and not according to the flesh. So what 4 says, verse 4, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk. It doesn't say... It's fulfilled in us who walk perfectly. It could. Back in before chapter 8, before chapter 3, it would. Because on your own standing, you need to do it perfectly. But being forgiven in Christ, you don't need to obey it perfectly to obey it in the Spirit. You don't need to obey the law perfectly to be able to say that God is pleased with me and, and God is being glorified by me and the law is being upheld in my life. Instead, he says... 
It's being upheld by those who are walking according to the Spirit and not according to the flesh. Us who walk according to the flesh, uh, uh, oh, sorry, us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. That's the big why. Why does God justify? So that He can sanctify us and eventually glorify us. That's the why. The question, though, has to become, after justification, now in terms of being made those people who are obeying God's law, becoming the people in whom the righteous requirements of the law are being fulfilled in our loving obedience to God's law and repentance when we break it, if that's to happen, the question becomes, how? How in the world does that happen? Because I know I'm... I could say you, but I've got enough evidence in my own life. I know I am a sinner in whom living according to the requirements of the law by the Spirit is impossible. We know that last week's question, how am I justified, the how is faith. How am I justified? Well, God sent his son. He died in my place. It's an offer given to me in a promise, and I simply receive it by faith. I believe, I rest, I trust God. That's the how I'm justified. Now we're asking the question, how am I made more righteous? And the answer isn't something you do. Not in Romans 8 at least. Look at the next verse, chapter 5. How? How am I made more righteous? How am I made a person living according to the law? Verse 5. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. What he's saying is, there's an existential reality. There's a way of being. There's a, there's a nature in humans. And in other words, you could, drill, you could divide the whole world in, into two categories along this dividing line. Those whose mindset those whose nature, those whose mental operating system is the flesh, and those whose mental operating system, those whose spiritual nature is according to the Spirit. That's what he's saying. That in order for us to be those who fulfill God's requirements of the law, who live righteous, not perfectly, but, but God-honoringly and lovingly, for us to be that sort of people, God has to first change our nature. And he does. We were people whose minds were set on the flesh. It was the default. It was the factory settings for us. It was the operating system. Imagine you have what what shall represent death and fullness for us? Android. Imagine you take up a device that is Android operating system. It works according to those principles. You can't plug in Apple things of the uh, programs and devices. They, they are incompatible. The operating system is Android. And, and therefore, if it was to be given to some nerd at Garden City and he gives it back about $400 later and he's done some kind of hacking uh, uh, activity and now you have a phone running on iOS, Apple's heavenly, amazing operating system. I hate Androids. <clears throat> anyway, um, that, that's not the point. Uh, once you have a new operating system, everything is different. Everything is different from the algorithm, I guess, on a mechanical DNA level up. It's different. Paul is telling us that the way you become righteous, walking out of the courtroom of God, 
You're about to live your new Christian life as a justified person. The reason God is saying that he can make a righteous person out of you who loves to obey the law is because he's changed something deeply true about your nature. He changed. This is called regeneration. Generate means to create. Re is do it again. God recreated you. You're a new creation, he says in 2 Corinthians 5. You're a new being. Jesus in John 3 says you've been born once and you've been born again. You're a new person. You've got eyes that work in the spiritual realm now. You've got a heart that can actually beat according to God's laws. You've got a, a mind that understands the word. You've got the spirit within you. You've been regenerated. Your nature, your mindset, your factory settings, your operating system, or the way that uh, Romans 8 says in verse 5, your mindset and focus is no longer on the flesh, but is on the spirit. Your, your mind is now running on the spirit tracks. Your mind is now operating on the spirit operating system. And then we can say, when? <clears throat> when in the world did this happen? And the answer is at the same time that you were justified. In Romans 8 verse 1, he says, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then he says, all the good stuff about justification are in Christ Jesus. So the ultimate source of all of our blessings as Christians, I want you to hear this, the ultimate source of all of our blessings as Christians is our union with Christ. You don't live better in life because you're justified. You don't have regeneration because you're justified. Luther used to say, I disagree with him on this. He used to say, justification is the source of every blessing in the Christian life. Not true. It is first in terms of logical, legal blessings. He must justify us before he blesses us in other ways. But justification itself is secondary to union with Christ. You can't have justification without righteousness, which you receive by your union with Christ. That's why we're saying that your moment of justification was when you placed faith in him, when you were unified to him, and so also your nature changed, your operating system changed. The, the way that your mind focuses changed from flesh to spirit when you were made unified by the spirit in your faith to Jesus Christ. That's when it happened. Some of you might be a Christian for a while, maybe a couple of years, maybe you're new here, you're not used to Bible explanation and people that speak about the gospel, or maybe you're just a Christian with struggles and you're hearing this and going, ah, oh, that was a long time ago. I should probably be different than I am right now. Right? Welcome to the party. Every single one of us is less sanctified than we wish we were. Paul says, that uh, uh, Paul has taught elsewhere, but this is the reality. Your nature, your mindset, your spiritual nature changed into regeneration. You were a new person back at the same time as justification because you got it when you were unified to Jesus Christ. That's why in verse 5 through 8, to say that somebody is a believer or somebody who has faith or a Christian or a justified person is the same as a whole bunch of parallel phrases that he gives us. They mean the same thing. Look at verse 5. No, look at verse 4. He says this phrase, who walk according to the Spirit. A justified person could otherwise be called somebody who walks according to the Spirit. 
Or in verse 5, those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. A justified person could otherwise be called somebody who sets their mind on the things of the Spirit. No one is justified by faith and union with Christ who is not also immediately likened to Christ in nature in their deepest being. Or we could say in verse 6, <clears throat> to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. So a believer, a Christian, and every believer and every Christian, you could say, is somebody who is setting their mind on the spirit and is in the status of life and peace. They all, they don't all mean the exact same thing, but they all apply to the same person. All of these things are true for every truly justified person. If you have no condemnation in Christ, if the law of God is fulfilled for you in Christ, if you are righteous in Christ, you have your mind set on the Spirit. You are walking according to the Spirit. You do have your mind set on life and peace. Verse 7 says, The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. It has no ability to do that. Verse 8, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Do you see that Paul is driving the wedge deeper? He is he's showing the divide even greater and wider with every line, with every verse here. He's saying it's impossible to be in the flesh and to be saved. This discussion of am I in the flesh or am I in the spirit is not the discussion of am I behaving well, am I living up to my potential as a Christian, or am I behaving poorly? It's not the same discussion. That discussion does happen in the New Testament in other passages. Romans 8 has a hint of glory that makes it full of promises and not a lot, at least yet, not a lot of introspection yet. Did you know that you could go to Romans 8 verse 1 and read all the way down to verse 11 at least, our passage tonight, and you would not find a single command. You wouldn't find Paul saying to you, do this, you're alive in the Spirit, you're in the Spirit, you've got your mind, here's how to, to live, here's what decisions, he doesn't do that yet. What he's giving to us is realities that are beneath us. He's not holding out something for us to go and get that we might attain. He's telling us what is already true about us that we would not believe if we weren't reading it right here. How many Christians are living their life and they're feeling the pain of sin and then they read, you are set on the flesh, on, on the spirit, I mean. Your mind is set on the spirit. You are life in peace. You are walking according to the spirit. You are living in the spirit. And we just, I must have missed something here that does not rightly explain my life. Well, it may not describe your experience, but it is describing your existence, your actual reality that you might not know yet. This is a life-changing chapter that when we come to understand its depths, and I pray that by God's grace you're here each week and exploring new factors and realities of the gospel, you cannot study and understand Romans 8 and not go away changed. No matter how many other sermon series and times you've studied it, every time that we dig into Romans 8, every Christian will go away, your life changed to some degree, especially if it's your first time doing so. So, why did God justify us in Jesus Christ 
so that he might have a people that are living righteously to his glory. How does he do that to us? First, by changing our nature so that we can understand and we do live according to the flesh. When does that happen? Back when you got saved. When you placed your faith in Christ. When you were unified to him, that's when you became a spirit person. There's so many phrases we could try to use to explain it, but, but let's just camp on that for a second. A spirit, you're no longer a flesh person. You're a spirit person. I know you've got flesh in you, and your flesh affects you, but you are by definition a spirit person. I'm, I'm not going to be one of those guys that comes out and says, stop calling yourself a sinner, you're a saint. Because you are a sinner. But your name, your title, your, your rightful declaration of who you are in Christ is, is saint. I just Everybody that I've heard say that will usually go on at some point to say, and it's possible and probable that you'll never sin in this life. And that's where, you know, they lose a front tooth. That's not true. But, but it's true enough to at least dabble in that for a second. If you're in Christ, your initial identification is not sinner. It's spirit, person, saint regardless of your actual behavior and experience. When did it happen? It happened when you were saved. If you are in Jesus, if you're a Jesus person, you are a spirit person. Now the next question is, are you sure I'm in the spirit? Uh, then we could have gone on and made other arguments and, and moved and changed subject. I think we probably need to stop there for a second. I think most Christians, and pastorally, this is my experience. I, I might tell somebody who's, who's, who's laboring to, 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 to get out of their patterns of sin and that I say, in my experience, I mean, look at what's in my life and look at what I'm still doing and looking at and saying and struggling with and not able to do. I mean, look at me. I'm, I'm weak and I'm helpless. And, and, and I'll meet them with the promises of Romans 8, that you're in the Spirit. You're living according to the Spirit. Can I say this? Even your sin, Christian, is in the Spirit. Does that sound almost scandalous? I hope so, because it is. The gospel is scandalous, but it's not wrong or unrighteous. A Christian who is in Christ is in the realm of the Spirit. Even your sin is committed in a different way than a non-Christian sins. A non-Christian sins according to his nature. He sins from the very deepest part of who he is, bubbling up his unrighteousness, and it comes out filthy. But a Christian's deepest nature is no longer filthy and unrighteous, but the pipework that brings it to the surface is. When you sin in the same way you sinned before you're a Christian, when you sin now as a Christian in the exact same way, you're still sinning differently. Because something inside of you hates this, that's being in the spirit. Something inside of you grieves, that's being in the spirit. You're led to repentance, that's being in the spirit. Those are things that those in the flesh don't have because they don't like God, they can't submit to his law, and they don't like it. Even your sin occurs in the realm of the spirit and living according to him. Now, we might say, are you sure it's appropriate to say I'm in the Spirit? I'm okay with going to heaven. I'm okay with being saved. I see in Romans 8, well, you know, I'm not condemned. I'm righteous. 
I'm not comfortable with saying I am in the Spirit, that I live according to the Spirit, that I have a mind set on the things of the Spirit. I'm not comfortable with that. Let's just settle with this, Pastor. I'm going to heaven. I'm not filled with the Spirit. Romans 8 verse 9 makes that an impossibility. Paul, Paul removes that option from in front of us, demanding us to just swallow whole the glorious reality that we are in the Spirit. Verse 9, he says this, You, though, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, now maybe you say, exactly, exactly. See, if you have the Spirit, you're in the Spirit. I'm in Christ. I'm, I know I'm just, I'm going to heaven, but I don't have the Spirit. I'm, I'm not in the Spirit. That's, that's beyond me. Uh, that's, that's extra saint stuff. That's, that's really mature Christian stuff. That, that's too bold for me to say based on my experience. Look at my internet history. Look at the words that came out of my mouth this week. Look at the things that I did with my non-Christian friends and in my workplace. No, 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 no. You look at this and you tell me I'm in the Spirit. No, my experience tells me I'm in Jesus, but not in the Spirit. I'm a Christian, but I don't have the Spirit in me. Romans 9, 8 verse 9 goes on to remove that, op- op- that option. He says, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Anyone that has the Spirit is in the Spirit. We go, yeah, well, maybe I'm a Christian, but I'm not in the Spirit. He goes, oh, and, and no one, everyone who has the Spirit belongs to Christ. Everybody who belongs to Christ has the Spirit. There's nobody who belongs to Christ that doesn't have the Spirit, or as he says it here, if you don't have the Spirit, you don't have Christ. Be very careful. Don't don't start chopping the gospel in half to make more sense of your experience. Reinterpret your experience through the glories of the gospel. Don't go start chopping out blessings and say, I'm not sure this makes sense of my experience. Change your mind. Repent, that's what that's called. Repent and agree with the gospel. And, and if you would say, but my sinful experience is so contrary to the fact that I'm in the spirit, then next week, stop sinning. That's an idea. If we hate our sin and think it's, it's contrary to our calling, then Paul's exhortation is, then let's get to killing and murdering that sin. Let's not slaughter and chop up the gospel. If you're in Christ, you're in the spirit. If you have faith in him, you are not living according to the flesh. If you trust in Jesus, you are walking according to the Spirit. Your mind is set on the things of the Spirit. You are in the experience called life and peace. And if that feels disconnected to your reality, keep coming to the series on Romans 8. The next thing is, what now? What now? Here I am, I'm I'm leaving the courtroom of God. I'm a justified person, but will I change? He says, oh, I changed you. When? Back in the courtroom. Wow, I'm a new person. Uh, What should I call myself? You're in the spirit. Even deeper, the spirit's in you. On one hand, he's going to call us this thing called in the spirit, not in the flesh, walking according to the spirit, all those things. But the more definitive reality is that the Spirit is in us. I sort of skipped over this in Romans 9, so look at it again. You are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. This is the decisive change-making portion. The decisive thing that makes you somebody that can rightly be identified as not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, 
is not your behavior or your track record this last week. It is if the Holy Spirit is inside of you. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. That's the decisive factor. So here we are. We're walking out of the court. I'm justified. I'm changed. I have the Holy Spirit. What now? What do I do? This sermon is not a what you do sermon. This sermon is not going to have a lot of here's how to apply this. This sermon has not got really any commandments in it. That's all next week. Romans 12 and 13. Here's how to kill your sin. This week is the glories of the promises. Now, now I'm doing that because this verse doesn't have any, any commands. There's no commands that Paul gives us. He's giving us full metal promises. He's just blasting all, all cannons at us into our souls of promises of what are already true about you, regardless of what you do, as long as you're in Christ. This is, a, this is a God-centric, this is a God-accomplished gospel. We're just studying our new selves. That's what we're doing tonight. So, so we're walking out of the courtroom. We say, what now? Look at verse 10. This is what now. In fact, before we go to verse 10, go back to chapter 7, verse 21. The last sort of section, little paragraph before Romans 8. What now? I'm a Christian, I'm justified, I'm legally not condemned. I've got a changed nature, the Spirit's within me, what now? <clears throat> but before Paul had revealed this amazing reality about the gospel, the, the amazing promise of the gospel that the Spirit indwells us, regardless of our worthiness and our experience, no matter how new of a Christian you are, no matter how, how failings you've had in the last month or whatever since your conversion, that's not, the, that's not the, the, the condition. The condition is that you're in Christ, so you have his spirit. But we need the context of Romans 7 to see the, to really feel the burn that Romans 8 comes to be the salve of. There's a burn in Romans 7. And it's, it's a chapter of it, but let me read uh, the last five verses which, which do capture the theme he says this, speaking hypothetically as a Christian, in fact, not hypothetically, speaking of his own reality, his own experience as a Christian, he says, I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. Played volleyball in high school, correct? I was terrible. But uh, there was this one team, they were uh, uh, built of mostly half-human, half-robot Samoans at a school near ours, and our team did not win a single game all season except for the time that somebody didn't show up. That was our one win. We would play uh, volleyball, and as you would expect, chunky white guys can't jump, but I, would try, I was one of the tallest, so I would be on the front of the net and often trying to spike it, and here was the rule of life for those 12 weeks that we tried to play volleyball, is that whenever I tried to make a spike, that 12 and a half foot giant Nephilim front guy would jump up and spike it back into my face <laughs> every time. No matter how many times I practiced, no matter how good I felt, no matter the run-up I got or how hard I hit it, every time, it was a law, every time I went for the spike, I'd be blocked and a, usually a blood nose. That's what Paul is saying, life is like as a Christian. You've got the law set up, you've memorized the commandment, you're ready for this, you've, you've planned your week out, you've done your devotions, the commandment of God comes to your mind, you go to obey it, 
And sin is just right there, sneaking out of nowhere, jumping up in the air and spiking it back in your face. There's never been a single time that as a Christian, you have sought to obey a commandment and been able to do it perfectly. You've been able to do it, but tainted, uh, corrupted, stained. There's always been sin's corroding influence. As we said before, the, the righteousness as a Christian now is coming from your new nature, but it's still poisoned by the old pipes, so that by the time it gets to the surface, it's coming out polluted. <clears throat> Whenever, Whenever I seek to do right, evil lies close at hand. Verse 22. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. The people who live according to the flesh do not delight in the law of God. That's what Romans 8 said. They cannot. They hate God and they hate his law. But Christians, we delight in the law of God in my innermost being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am. There's no Christian alive that hasn't cried that out or screamed it into your pillow at some point in your life. I am so weak. I hate who I am. Why did I do that? Why did I say that? Why did I let myself do this again? This is the Christian experience, wretched, pathetic, sinful, deserving of hell person that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? My spirit has been delivered. I delight in God's law now. I love his righteousness. But now you know the, the unique suffering of a Christian that a non-Christian never experiences? I love God's law and cannot do it. I yearn for it, and I'm always being held back. This is the Christian experience in all of life, is that as long as you're living, you have the ball and chain of this body around your ankle, keeping you on the ground. And you want to jump up to obey, and you want to leap to this heavenly obedience, and you are always kept at a foot off the ground maximum because of the flesh. And Paul yells out, he screams into this letter, as I'm sure he has done so in prayer many times before, who will deliver me from this body of death? When will I finally be able to strip off this body and live in a body that's perfect? Live in a body that perfectly synchronizes and perfectly aligns to what I know to be true and good? Here's the answer. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, here's how it concludes the Christian life. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Paul is saying, he's asking the question, is there a day when my soul will be able to inhabit a body that obeys the law of God? Yes. But it's a long way from now. It's on a day set by God, the perfect timing. I think it's too far away, my opinion. His perfect timing, when Jesus comes back and all the, living, all the dead Christians come back with him and all the living Christians are resurrected with them and all of us receive a body, a glorified body like Jesus' body, incorruptible body that can't die, can't sin and can't even think something out of the will, out of alignment with the will of God. Amen, somebody. That's a hallelujah day right then when we finally get a body to inhabit that is glorified and resurrected up out of any of the grip of sin. That's the day coming. 
That happens a long time from now. A long, even when you die, you're not there yet. Even until that resurrection day, when you're in heaven, Paul says it's bliss, it's with Jesus, but it's disembodied. He has a body that I've been promised. Jesus has a body. We've all been promised one like him, and I don't have one yet. He says in 2 Corinthians 5 that the souls in heaven are, are in a sense yearning for the day that they get to be fully clothed with the, with the fullness of salvation that we've been promised. They're, they're in a sense still living in Romans 7 going, give me that body. I want to serve you in my body. I want to have that experience for the first time, a beautiful, glorious, flawless experience of obeying God in the flesh. That's a long way away. However, Romans 8.1 then starts out, Will my body ever be turned into a body that can perfectly obey God? Yes, on resurrection day. Long time away. Okay, does that mean that until then, I'm living under the condemnation of God? No, no, no. By faith in Christ, the condemnation is removed. So you may be still waiting for your body. You may be still struggling in the desires of the flesh, but know that you're not condemned in Christ Jesus. Okay, here's the third question. Does that mean that my experience of flesh and righteousness, sin and, 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 and goodness, that that remains unchanged? The answer is no. Now you are in the flesh. We do have the spirit. There are two powers working on you right now. They are not equal forces. That's the goodness of Romans 8. You are in the... You, no, that would be confusing language. You have a body of flesh. Your spiritual nature is changed. Your mindset is changed. But the Spirit's work in you is more powerful than the, the flesh's corrupting influence on you. That's, that's part of the good news. That, that in answer to Romans 7, Paul answers himself and says, Yes, I can be free of this body one day. And I can be free of condemnation right now. And I can be free of the onslaught of the power of sin right now. Look now at Romans 8, verse 10. This is the experience change. But if Christ is in you, same thing as saying if the Spirit is in you or if you are in Christ. If you're in Christ, if the Spirit's in you, if Christ is in you, Although the body is dead, yes, I know what I wrote in Romans 7, Paul said. I remember that. The body is dead. It's the sin. It's the members. It's cursing you. The body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. And then he changes language. And instead of now saying, your body's dead, the spirit is life, he brings them together and says, actually, if that spirit of resurrection is in your dead body, then your body is mortal, but not dead anymore. He changes his language. Mortal means able to die. Mortal means this body needs to be resurrected one day. Mortal means diable, killable, deadable, but not quite the same thing as dead. It's not an eternal body. It's not a perfectly righteous body. It's not a resurrected body and it's not a glorified body, but it's not a dead body anymore. It's a dead body with the spirit of resurrection in it. It's not a resurrected, but do you see the pull, the strain, and the tension that the gospel leaves us in right now and we just wish Jesus would come back already or that we would die or both? I don't care. I just want to be out of this flesh. And the answer is your body is dead with the spirit of resurrection in it and the body isn't resurrected. So what do you call that? 
call that a mortal body being brought to life by the powerful spirit of resurrection. Verse 11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he's giving you the spirit's resume. He's the spirit of the father who rose Jesus from the dead. Remember that? Remember when God's wrath was piled up and poured out on one soul? And it buried him so deep under the condemnation of the law and under the wrath of God that none would ever hope that he'd come back, but that the promise said that he would not let his Holy One see corruption. If not for the promise of God, Jesus would be the deadest being in all of history. Here's the Spirit's resume. I work for the Father who resurrected the Son. I'm that Spirit. Paul says, if the spirit of him who raised, Jesus, who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, then how could your experience be anything other than your life being filled with righteousness despite your mortal body? If that's the case, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead, that is the spirit, will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in in you. I think that this promise is much more powerful. I know that this promise is much more powerful than if we spent 50 minutes or four hours me, 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 me commanding and exhorting and demanding and telling you how you should be now that you're a Christian. That's less powerful to give command and command and command than rather, what do you think would be more effective? Yelling at you to go running. How many of you want to run out of here at 20 kilometers an hour? That's pretty slow, but let's be nice. 20 kilometers out of 50 kilometers. How many of you want to go sprinting out of the room right now? Would me commanding you to do that get you doing it? Or would lighting a firecracker underneath your seat get you doing it quicker? That's what Romans 8 is. That's what Romans 8, 4 through 11 is. It's the firecracker. I don't even need to tell you what to do this. I don't need to tell you how to apply this. I don't need to command you how to be a spirit-filled person. The spirit has it under control. We'll get there next week because it's in the Bible. But this week, you've got it. The spirit is in you giving life to your mortal bodies and he's going to blast the sin out of you if we just believe this glorious promise. And none of this applies to people who don't believe in Jesus. You love your sin and you hate God. And none of this is good news. Being freed from your sinful behavior, that's, that's why you live. Why would you want to be freed from it? Being enabled to do righteous things according to God's law sounds, sounds dumb to you, boring to you, like hell to you. Because your nature is opposed to God. You are in the dead reality. You are according to your flesh. You are under God's judgment and you are still condemned. The good news of Jesus is this, that it's not just the people who have the spirit who may be released from death and bondage and judgment. It is anybody who still has breath in their lungs, who can hear the good news of Jesus dying and rising for sinners. The good news is on offer for everybody and anybody, including and especially you right now. If you're an unbeliever and none of this applies to you, repent. Look to Jesus in your mind and call on him and say, I don't like the sound of this. I don't like righteousness. I love sin, but my heart is torn now. Jesus, please give me the new heart to hate sin. Please give me faith to believe in you. Please give me union with your spirit so that I can go with you and be declared righteous and escape hell. 
Call on Jesus. No one who calls on the name of the Lord Jesus will ever be put to shame. Let's pray. Father God, we praise you. Paul commanded nothing of us tonight except to believe the promise. To to, to not consider our life and reinterpret Romans 8, but to read the promises and get used to it. Father God, I pray that you would help settle in our heart. And not not just theological. There are so many people with, with expert theology whose experience is still joyless and filled with sin. Father God, would you release our minds and flood our minds and release the bonds of our heart and and fill our heart with your love and the glories of the promises in Romans 8. If we have Jesus, we have freedom from the flesh. Ultimate freedom coming. Perfect freedom yet to be. But right now we have freedom from its ongoing destructive tyranny. Thank you, Jesus. We praise you, God, through Jesus Christ, your son, that we have a day to wait for when we will enjoy full, complete, unmitigated obedience to you. We long for that day. Father God, we thank you that that we we have the promises that until then we can live righteously if if we have the spirit, if we have faith in Jesus, if you are filling us to do so. I pray then that, God, you would save those who do not trust in Christ that tonight you would exchange their mind, that you would give them a new mind, a born-again heart, a new spiritual life so that they can behold Jesus in his glory. They can rest on him and ask of his salvation and be saved. And for all those who are in Jesus Christ, would you set as a seal upon our hearts that we are not condemned but righteous and that we have the Spirit to live according to the Spirit, to the glory of God, who raised Jesus Christ, our Savior from the dead. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. This sermon was preached at Hope Reformed Baptist Church in Logan, Australia. For more information about our church, visit our website at hoperb.church. If you have been blessed, please leave us a review wherever you listen. We pray this message has been used by God to grow and encourage you in your Christian walk. Thank you for listening. Soli Deo Gloria.